0: Chris, Andy, really looking forward to talking to you today. Chris, it's your first time on the Instep podcast, but Andy is an expert. I think, Andy, actually, you hold the record for the most number of appearances on the Instep podcast. I think you're coming up to number five in different guises. So you were founded back in 2013 out of Bristol University, where both of you were studying for a PhD, and uh, I know where your office is still today. You're providing now global flood tools to insurance and a number of other industries. We're going to hear a bit more about that. As we go. So, insurers are pricing, and then generally, people are using your flood models to manage risks. And I believe you've now got 45 people with you. So, you've been going 10 years, you've got a substantive business now. Congratulations on making it through that kind of early challenge of a, a startup going to scale up. You had close to 1,000 people listen to the episode, Andy, that we did with you and Ollie. Back at 130. So that makes you in our top 25% of popular podcasts. So that's the challenge for both of you today. Chris, Andy, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Did I miss anything in that initial overview for the company?
1: I don't think so. It was, it was a
0: nice way to summarize
1: the last decade of our lives. I can't quite believe it's been five times on here. People will think I'm a complete narcissist. Chris, don't say anything. I was going to say that won't be a surprise to anyone on the team here,
0: but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, as you said, 10 years. It's something it's some of a milestone. And how does Fathom look today from when you had the idea back in 2013? I'd love to say we had some kind of grand vision,
1: but we really didn't. I mean, we just kind of started out. It was something that was, I think, a bit of fun, really. See if we can build some models and sell them. I can't quite believe, actually, that the, the talent we have now in the company. That is something that uh, I did not envisage. And it's a real pleasure working with such great people day to day. And I think that the technology as well is just so fundamentally different now. I think we've made much more progress than we thought. Maybe the nicest thing about where we are right now is that the fundamentals are still the same. We're still science-led. We still publish everything in peer-reviewed journals. And we're really just still trying to build better flood models. Actually, it is the fact that we've stayed true to that focus on the
2: science that's helped us to recruit such a strong team. Is why we have some really great scientists who who kind of approach us looking to make that shift from academia into industry,
0: because they want to see their research actually applied. And you stayed together. I think that's one of the other challenges for companies. When you've got co-founders, it's rather like a marriage. You've got to you literally live together. Your finances are totally linked together. I guess, Andy, you didn't quite know what you're doing, but... You in the early days, my sense is where you are today is what you 're looking to do. you want to build models, you wanted to be transparent, you wanted to work with a wide range of organizations and it looks like that 's what you 're doing quite successfully.
2: yeah, we rarely argue right Andy I suppose it 's a, a case perhaps of opposites attracting in this particular relationship
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it 's true.
1: We recently did a uh, a, a company away trip where we kind of did one of these analyses of personality types and and chris and i were the complete and utter opposites in everything so opposites attract it's a really important point actually it's to have kind of complementary
2: skills in a founding team and we were fortunate it wasn't a plan at the beginning it's just
0: that's this is the way that it's turned out the way i think about it is beliefs if you've got the same beliefs we tend to be born with our beliefs then the differences complement each other. But if the beliefs are different, it, it can be really difficult. But Andy, as, you, as you're into full disclosure and transparency and publishing, I hope you're going to be publishing your, uh, your personality profiles so that we can all... <laughs> it.
1: I don't think it'll, take, it'll surprise anyone. As I said at the start, I'm a complete narcissist. So.
0: Yeah, Andy's a narcissist <laughs> and I'm a robot, apparently. according. to <laughs> Well, let's get on with what we're here for. What is the actual problem that they're paying you money to solve?
2: Fundamentally, people are trying to understand risk on the ground. And for for pricing, that's to understand at a location level what the hazard looks like. And our abilities there have just improved as the data has improved that we run the models with. And the way in which we build the models has become more sophisticated and has got better at dealing with the limitations of the data. So, in effect, our ability to, to tell people about their risk at the location level anywhere in the world has improved through time, and that makes the data more useful to more people. And then on the portfolio side, that has changed more, I would say, over the last decade. Flood models are really challenging to turn into catastrophe models because of the granularity of the data. One of the things that we're doing that's perhaps a little bit different and is is one of the reasons why it's taken us a little time to get to the real portfolio management side of things is that we're trying to evidence every step of the way to a flood catastrophe model. <laughs>
0: welcome or welcome back. Matthew Grant here. And if you've made it this far, then you're probably intrigued by how people are assessing flood risk these days. As you probably guessed, we are big supporters of what Fathom is doing. And we're delighted to have Andy, Chris and their colleagues as members of Instec. Well, if you aren't familiar with what we're up to, hang in to the end and I'll explain a little bit more about how we might be able to help you, whether you work for an insurance organisation or have some technology you want the world to know about. And you can also find more www.instec.co. Before we go back to Chris, we may get a bit technical in a couple of places, but hang in there. I'll be jumping in occasionally to reflect on what Chris and Andy are saying, or if I'm not sure, I'll ask them to explain. Well, after all, do you know what a hydrological model is? Now, back to Chris.
2: We've done some really nice work recently, started by Ollie Wing, and we've had another paper just recently published by a PhD student that we're sponsoring called Guy Olcheze, that looks at our ability to capture sort of the spatial patterning of flood events around the world using hydrological models and the fact that you can actually do that reasonably well. But it takes time to work through that process. It takes time to put that science through peer review and then turn that into product. And I think that's that's one of our big focuses at the moment. And, and Chris,
0: you mentioned hydrological models in there. Mm. For those that don't understand what those mean, what would be a sort of layperson's way of describing those?
2: Well, in in our use case, it's turning rainfall into river flow. That's the basic job of a hydrological model in the context of flood. And the problem with hydrological models and rainfall data is that it's very difficult to drive a detailed flood model with them directly for various technical reasons. But what we've shown that you can do and what these models can do is capture the spatial patterns of flooding so they're not very good at telling you exactly how much water is going to fall in any one place but what they are good at telling you is that if place a is flooding then place b is also quite likely to be flooding at the same time the hydrological model can capture that in much the same way as gauges on a river can capture that and when we know that and we prove that we can then extend that to parts of the world that you don't have gauges and that's what unlocks the ability to build a model at the global scale
0: back to my earlier question about what's changed in 10 years so uh, the vision for the business might not have changed but as we all know the processing power of computers has changed phenomenally in 10 years and so when i look back at what people were modeling or looking at catastrophes to model 10 years ago it was next to impossible to model flood accurately but now i mean what you're saying chris is is through the hydrological model and the, the ability to simulate and, and create the antecedent conditions, you know, the conditions that you need to basically identify what happens when the rain lands on the ground and flows into the rivers, that is now possible to get a credible model that people are using for those two areas, pricing and portfolio.
2: Yeah, I mean, particularly on the portfolio side, yeah, that's where the hydrological model sits. It lets us create those event footprints that make sense, and they allow us to do that anywhere in the world. That's critical, clearly, to building a cap model. But it's, it's challenging, and there hasn't been a huge amount in peer-reviewed literature about this so that's that's the gap that we're trying to fill and then that gives the users the confidence that actually the science that underpins this model is appropriate for the use that we want to put it to
0: and i just want to come back to something you were talking about earlier so we'll pick up the flood discussion in a moment but as the companies evolved you took the decision i guess both of you a couple of years ago to bring in a ceo i don't want to stretch that marriage sort of parallel too much. Not quite sure that would take us, but that's quite, a, <laughs> that's quite a brave decision to some extent. I mean, a lot of times you see the, the founders working out amongst themselves, who's going to be the CEO. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But what, what was behind the decision to bring Stuart Whitfield in
1: yeah, as your, I guess, as your boss. We were really lucky, actually. In, in when we left the university, we got some grant money that allowed the company to be housed within the university for a few years. But then, in essence, we had to grow up and, and leave home. And we left and went to an incubator space in Bristol, a, a tech incubator space. And that we had workshops on things like how to build a board. And frankly, what things like a board meeting should entail, what you should be discussing there. Uh, The reality was that we were spending most of our board meetings talking about flood modeling, which is absolutely not what we should be doing in board meetings. And Stuart actually joined initially as a a non-executive director. So he just came along to our board meetings. And it was kind of through that process that we realized, actually, we need somebody to come in here and really help us to run the company. Uh, Chris and I have good skill sets in building flood models. I think we had all the, the skills we needed in terms of building the tech itself. But actually, in terms of running a company... Neither of us have done that before. So, uh, yeah, we decided to bring Stuart in. And he did have quite a long, a long probation period as a non-executive director. And um, it's been fantastic bringing him in, actually. He's, he's really helped us to, uh, to grow the company. And if you look at the size of the company now compared to where we were two years ago, there has been a real uh, significant acceleration in, in our growth as an organization.
2: Stuart and I actually first met in a speed dating round within, within the within the Business Accelerator where we had 60 seconds to pitch to each other. And then we put our names in a hat, as I'm told that you do in these events. Our names matched up at the end of the evening. So yeah, it was a long ramp. I think I'd like to reflect here a little bit as well that you said it can be challenging for founders to to bring additional management into an organization. I think for an individual founder-led business, that can be really hard because if it's an individual leading a startup, they're used to ultimately always making the decisions, the big decisions themselves. Whereas a team, you're, you're inherently more collaborative in your decision-making approach. And I think that makes it easier to bring, I guess, outside counsel into that process later on. And so, I've, yeah, I think we've been fortunate in that case.
0: Andy, when you and I were talking recently, you were over in Texas at a conference out there. That is a good lead into some of the things you're doing outside of insurance. It'd be good to hear about who else you're working for and what you're doing for them
1: in the beginning insurance was the focus for us chris's phd was funded by willis and we, we had lots of connections with the insurance industry so we knew that that industry consumed these kinds of models and unsurprisingly it's become clear since that the market for these kinds of climate risk information is is way bigger than just insurance uh, we work with in, insurers yes but also banks engineering companies some corporates for things like supply chain risk and also governments and just built statewide flood maps for the state of texas so this is for the actual texan government there'll be another phase of that project hopefully beginning soon it was a really great trip actually because we actually got to get feedback from people on the ground using the models and the data that we're producing these are real floodplain managers who are concerned about things like flood risk in their local communities. And what we were hearing is that the models did have real skill for people. It it was identifying areas that they know are risky and that aren't currently captured in in existing flood maps. So are you starting to
0: see interest from corporates where they are looking at it from a risk management or insurance buying angle? So the areas you mentioned is is sort of looking at their own assets. But is that also something that people are starting to ask your help with in terms of making choices about how they insure and set up captives and those kind of things?
1: Yeah risk management, things like their own exposure, also things like responding to increasing regulation. Even if you're not concerned with climate risk, you're being forced to. And I think that kind of legislation is only going one way. I think there'll be more and more legislation in the future that will require you to use the kinds of technology that we build here at Fathom.
0: And measure it, of course. So that, are there any examples you've seen where you've learned from your clients that, that can then be, help you help your insurance clients? If
2: I'm honest... I think the insurance market is ahead of most of the other sectors that, that we're seeing, particularly if they're dealing with portfolios. So in a way, it's actually perhaps the lessons flow the other way. It's it's what can the asset managers learn
1: from the insurers. I would agree. I mean, th- there are some examples. The importance of good hazard modelling is, is really apparent when it comes to kind of local scale engineering work or if you're building maps, for example, I've mentioned government flood maps building those kinds of data sets and making sure that they are actually robust is important. And there's some through flow into our work with insurance there. But really, I think a lot of it is, as Chris said, is is the other way around. I think there's almost been a a narrative somewhat recently around cap models not being fit for purpose in, in the climate space with regards to climate change. And actually, I think that's largely just complete nonsense. If you, if you have good physically-based cat models, then they're absolutely appropriate. Even if you're looking at a, a future risk, you can deploy them. If they're good physically-based models, you can deploy them to look at future risk as well. And, and I think a lot of other industries, as Chris has said, could learn a lot from, from what's been done in insurance over the past few years.
0: Now, I completely agree. I am is in catastrophe modeling, so I do have a slight bias. But you know, Hurricane earthquake models have been built for 30 years. The elements like fund- how to deal with vulnerability, how to deal with uncertainty, we're going to come and talk a bit about are still completely valid. There are a lot of challenges as we've talked about before and we'll all be continuing to talk about in how do you account for, you know, as, as Ollie talked to us about with Jasper's help, that difference between the seasonal variability in climate versus the long-term trends. And you can get into a lot of trouble trying to extrapolate out a few years ahead with climate change and, and use that to price for risk. Okay, I'm just going to interrupt myself a moment here. You're probably wondering what all this business is with Jasper and Ollie. So if you hang in there to the end, we're going to give you an extract from our event last year when we heard all about how to use Jasper the dog to explain seasonal variability in climate change. I think, Chris, back to your point, I completely agree with you. I feel the insurance industry generally is a little bit too modest about its successes and and that whole understanding of uncertainty and probabilities to understand risk. Can one of you sort of bring to life about the kind of data that you're using to inform the model and help people make decisions underwriting or with the portfolio?
2: Okay, so the data that goes into the models, this has changed significantly over the last decade, I would say. If we're talking about modelling at the global scale, Probably the single biggest change that we've seen over the last few years is the release of the new European Space Agency Copernicus Elevation Dataset, sort of eight years ago now, I think. And it's by far the biggest step that we've seen for raw data availability for the whole planet since the shuttle mission around the year 2000. And for a flood model, that underlying data is fundamental, the keystone on which everything else is built. Now you have to do a lot of work to that data to take it from its raw form into something that 's appropriate for a flood model, and all of the things that we 've learned over the last twenty years working with the space the shuttle radar data can now be applied to this next generation because it 's also a radar product it 's just more finely resolved, higher accuracy, and so that has significantly improved things but The availability of river gauge data around the planet has increased significantly. And there's been a big movement within hydrology towards sort of big data style analyses that's trying to pull this data from around the world. That's true of river data. It's true of rainfall data. And then the sort of statistical learning methods that the entire industry and the academic research space are starting to apply to these data have unlocked an awful lot of, I think, Predictive capability and ability to model in spaces that aren't gauged and aren't observed, and and bringing these things
0: together has really helped us to to improve what the models can do. Data: the European satellite data is free, but you've got a little work to process it. But what about the sensor data? So, how is that data being available? Is there a like an open source data stream, for want of a better word, that you can go to, or does that depend upon the willingness of different countries or? property owners to make available that data?
2: Typically, the academic community that have worked to pull this data is challenging because some countries and some organizations will have different levels of capability to share data. It depends on the the kind of legal systems involved in each country. And so, you know, it's not usually possible to get access to raw data all over the planet. You can often only get access to, say, summary statistics. But there have been some fantastic projects that have tried to pool as much of this data and make it available. And then you have to think of smart ways to use the data that is available. This is where the academic ties that we have become really valuable because they allow us to work with people and and access some of this data that's not necessarily easy for everybody to get access to. And there's tit for tat here. A lot of industry organizations, commercial organizations, not just in our space, but in in many spaces like to, to take from academia. And I think you get a lot more back if you try and contribute as much as you take. It makes these collaborations genuinely two-way, and people then are much more willing to involve you in grants and projects that, that get you access to this data. And so the academic angle that we talk about a lot, it isn't just a nice thing to do. It has a very strong business rationale as well, and part of that rationale is having access
1: to data ahead of potentially other organisations. One of the differences in the data that we produce is that they are based on physically based models. So if you look under the hood at what we do here at Fathom, we, we build models that really do represent the physics of flooding. So we're representing how water flows across the earth's surface and how water flows within river channels. We're building real physical models using some really old maths going back to the 1800s. But in, in new ways, and we're applying these models at larger scales. So I think that's a big differentiation between what's been possible in the past and what we're doing now.
0: And let's talk a bit about uncertainty, because this is another area that you are very open about communicating and advising people on. But as anybody who's at all sort of sophisticated in analytics or spent time looking at models understands, you can't rely on a single answer to make a decision. And in fact, often the skill of a good underwriter is dealing with uncertainty and making decisions around uncertainty. How is Fathom do you both reveal the uncertainty, but reveal it in a way that doesn't, undermine confidence in the model and helps people make decisions as opposed to so much uncertainty. I can't do anything.
2: The point at which we start with this process is the peer review process. As I say, we try and put the methods that we use and then ultimately the models that we use through a process of peer review. And that forces you far more than a typical white paper, for example, to be explicit about what's working and what isn't working and where the model is weak and where it's strong. And having an honest conversation about If we drill down a little bit more on that, we know that certain components of a model drive uncertainty more than others. For example, in a hazard model for flood, we know that the terrain data, so you can start to just shoot for ever-increasing resolution in your elevation model, and that helps to a point, but then other parts of uncertainty in the model will start to dominate. I think ultimately it comes down to trying to provide users with a qualitative but sort of expert elicitation-type view of how how good do we think our model is in this location relative to other areas and that's something that we do provide with our data so we provide a metadata layer that attempts to distill our view of how well the model is working in any given location so how well do we think the hydrology is captured in this area how good's the terrain data do the climate models agree or disagree hugely in this area etc and that's something that can be useful to users to get a sense of okay the model is more robust in this area than in that area?
1: Well, just with regards to uncertainty, we do do try and convey this to our clients, as Chris has said. Uh, You mentioned papers. There was a really good one published last week, actually, in conjunction with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And the paper showed that uh, when you compare two flood models, so models built at local scales by the Army Corps and Fathoms models, neither model was the best model all the time. And this is a really nice conclusion, and it's something that we've advocated for a long time. And that is that you shouldn't rely solely on Fathom's models. In an ideal world, what you'll do is you'll use multi-models. That's what we should be doing here.
2: The climate modelers all use multi-models. The weather forecasters all use multi-models. The cat
0: modelers should use multi-models. And the trick is knowing how to use each model and don't just simply take an average of all of them equally. You've got to understand that, as you said, Andy, some are better than other places. Anyway, a whole other topic we get into. But it it did lead on to my next question, which is around partnerships and collaboration. So we're delighted to run an event with you and re-ask that we're building a tropical cyclone model. As you look at the strategy of the company, how do you think about collaboration and what it does for you? And actually, maybe even more importantly, what does it do for your clients?
1: Well, I think at Fathom, we we like to think we're pretty good at building flood models, but we're we're aware of our gaps and we know that we're not experts in building tropical cyclone models, for example. And we're not afraid of bringing in our expertise and partnering with other organizations where we need to. Tropical cyclone modeling itself is actually a component of flood models in many ways. It drives extreme precipitation in lots of parts of the world. It drives storm surges in places like the U.S., But correlation is also important. We need to correlate these models. And that's something that's been mentioned to us by our clients for a few years now. They're asking for correlated wind-flood models. As I mentioned, we're not experts in building TC models. We actually spent a bunch of time engaging with lots of people in the market, asking them their opinions on who they thought we should partner with. And and Reask was a name that, that came up constantly. So that's why that partnership's emerged. And I don't think it'll be the last. There'll be other gaps that we fill by partnering with
0: other experts in other industries as well. And TC, of course, is a tropical cyclone. And then, and I just want to come back to your global flood map that you released in October. Has that been going since you you launched that to the well, I guess, to the world as its global flood map? Really,
1: there's been a huge leap forward in our ability to model at global scales. In the beginning, we were running hydraulics at around 900 meters. We're now running hydraulics at 30 meter resolution. We have much improved terrain data sets around the world, which is really exciting. We're also adding new perils. So we have coastal inundation for the whole planet now. And we're also able to, to provide information on any climate scenario you want after to 2100. I'm looking forward to getting the data into, into more people's hands this year and, and getting more feedback on what people think.
0: Great. And we'll put a link to more information about the global flood model in the episode notes. And finally, for our listener that goes away and someone says, well, what would Andy and Chris talking about on that Fathom podcast? Uh, we've now got our elevator pitch. We've got 15 seconds with me in the elevator to succinctly describe what Fathom does. So which one of you would like to step into the elevator with me and uh, tell us about Fathom one, one more time?
2: We'll let the narcissist step up (laughs) to the plate,
0: shall we? Andy, come on in. Right, you've got 15 seconds starting from now. Flooding is the most costly and prevalent disaster in the world.
1: Uh, At Fathom, we've made it our mission to provide science-led flood risk information for the entire planet under any climate scenario.
0: I I think it's perfect. I think you must have rehearsed that. It's been a real pleasure to have both of you on. As always, I learn a lot when I talk to you, but you've also got the ability to make this really simple and understandable. And you know, congratulations for building a business and growing it and running it for 10 years. It, as uh, many of us know, that is hard work. And it's just great to see people succeeding and great to see companies that started in the UK expanding into the US and the rest of the world. Thank you both. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Almost there, lots of events from us coming up, live events, digital and more. And if you're coming to London at the end of February and like to see us, Matthew Grant or Robin Mertens on LinkedIn or hello at instec.co and of course, www.instec.co to find out everything else we're up to.
3: All I talk about at the moment is my dog, a little puppy called Jasper. And he's a really good example of climate versus natural variability. When I take him for a walk around the park, if you think the route back to my house, that's the kind of long-term climate trend that I'm walking on my own but as soon as I leave the house he's off up to the park and he's the kind of variability right even though the climate's only changed a little bit you're looking at me I don't know where Jasper is at any point in time he might be ahead of me he might be behind me but he might be with me and essentially that's you know what we're interested in is where Jasper is right if you press pause I'm very predictable I move at a very steady consistent pace that's the warming trend what's going to happen next year or in five years' time, we want to know where Jasper is. Maybe there's a dog over there. It could be way off out the other side of the park. You know, that could be the equivalent of a volcano going off and the climate actually cooling. It could be the consequence of, you know, a phase of El Niño or the North Atlantic Oscillation. That's what's driving the losses. And so even the newest tools right now are really only starting to identify where I am on my walk, and they have no clue where Jasper is. And so one of the big things that we're hoping to address with RIAS is, at least in the short term, start to try and nail down that natural variability.